0: Now, Heavenly Father, bless us now as we come to your precious word, as we read it, Lord, as we hear it preached. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored with this sermon, Lord, with what we hear, with what we understand. And Lord, you would be pleased to cause our hearts to receive its truth and to examine ourselves in light of it and not the world. That we would walk according to your word. That it would be a true light not only in us, but outside of us and guide all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In James chapter 5, I want to begin reading at verse 7. And therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we count those blessed who endured who have heard of the you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful and thus ends the reading of God's word please be seated now brothers and sisters this morning we are going to focus on this grace patience is a christian grace it is the fruit of the Spirit. We have it because we are in, uh, are because the Spirit is in possession of us. The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit works in us. And the Spirit is working in us those attributes and characteristics that God possesses. He's working in us love, joy. Patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, just to name some of them. Now, we looked at that passage in Galatians last week, and I want to make sure we understand clearly why we believe or why we should believe that patience, not stoicism, not, not some, some long-suffering in the way the world handles adversity and hardships but the way Christians <clears throat> should come to trials and tribulations that it is a it is a grace it is a grace this grace isn't shared with the world they can be stoic they can say whatever they can say you know what is done is done there's any number of ways in which the world can address difficulties and hardships but that doesn't mean they do it from a christian perspective we should as christians who profess christ who have the holy spirit living in us we should understand that want that the primary duty and role of the holy spirit is to make us godly is to make us godly it's not to give us visions. It's not to speak audibly to us so we can walk around saying, well, God talked to me yesterday. No, the whole primary purpose of the, of the Holy Spirit working in us is so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would look like our Heavenly Father, and we would certainly look like our Heavenly Savior. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Let's look at some passages of Scripture To help us with this. Take your Bibles and turn to John 14. John 14. I think this has to be established if we're going to to understand this um, purpose. Look at John 14. Look at verse 16. Here's what I want you to get out of this when I read it. What I want you to see and understand is that Christ has is, is about to ascend to his Father, and when he does this, he's going to confirm his ascension, he's going to uh, confirm his authority in heaven by sending to us the Holy Spirit in his name, so that all who believe and truly trust in Christ will be possessors of the Holy Spirit and we would be his possession. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 16. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth. That's another name for the Holy Spirit, spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a while, the world will no longer see me and you will, you will see me because I live. You will also, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, now, come on down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Now, this all things is not the mysteries of the universe. This all things is all that it pertains to Godliness. All things that pertains to salvation, justification, sanctification. All things that pertains to the glorifying, how we glorify God on this earth. That's what he means by that. By that, he says, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. I think we can also see and understand that Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, gives to us the Holy Spirit who brings with Him peace. Peace. That's why, again, only a Christian can have real peace. Peace. True peace. Only a Christian can exercise this grace of patience as it's commanded in Scripture. Let's look at another passage quickly so that we can see the continuity of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Ephesians, Philippians. Look at it. Philippians chapter 2. And again, um, what I want you to recognize is the work that is taking place in the believer because what James is doing, what James commands, we can do as Christians. What James commands, by God's grace, we can perform. Now, we may struggle, it may not be easy, and it's often not easy, but we can do these things. Look at verse 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now stop there. How are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Certainly not in our own strength, because we should all know and understand by now that we're weak. That we are very timid. That we can one day be be certainly mighty spiritually and the next day almost looking like cowards. So it's not in our own strength that Paul commands this. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. That's why we can do it. Because God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And now just for an extra bonus, look at verse 14 because we're going to have to deal with grumbling. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. So we have right here, brothers and sisters, I'm confirming the teaching of Scripture that this grace of patience is a Christian grace. All who profess the name of Christ who are in possession of the Holy Spirit, can exercise this grace. And because God is working in us, now we are to take this command very seriously. Look back at the book of James and let's begin looking at the text itself. Looking at the text itself. Look at verse 8. Notice we see the very first imperative from verse 8 on. Now, we have one in verse 7. It's the same one. Be patient. Verse 8. It's the same thing. Be patient. Be patient. And again, here's the point. I'm only going to make this, and we're going to move on to the second imperative. When James calls upon us to be patient, it's it's as equally strong as if James said, be a Christian, or be be." Um, a, a disciple of Christ. Why? Well, because of everything that I've already said. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? He's working all of these graces in us that we might look like God, and you know, be able to live in a godlike manner, and 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 give Him all the praise and glory as we rest and trust in His power, His grace, and strength. He's working in us godliness. So, to be one of those graces is to be a Christian. Be loving. Be patient. Be kind. Be joyful. All of these are the fruit of the Spirit. It's just as equal if John, again, to be a Christian is to be loving. It's to be patient. is to be kind. So what James is doing here, James in commanding us to be patient is just saying to us, listen, be submissive, be Christian, be a disciple of Christ. Humble yourselves. Let these graces, let this grace grow up in you. Don't waste the trial and affliction that, is, that I brought upon you. Don't waste it. Use this as an opportunity to see these particular graces grow up in your life so that we more and more look like Christ and our Heavenly Father. I hope you all see that. He's telling us to be patient. We're understanding that a Christian, this is, you know, again, is equivalent to the command to be a Christian Christian. We have no, I guess the emphasis before I move on to the next one is this, because I don't want to continue to belabor the point, but I wanted to say this. If we adopt this teaching, it does eliminate the excuses. You know, we can't say when we get ready to justify ourselves, well, that's just not me, I'm just not a patient person. I'm just not, you know, I, 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 I wasn't raised that way. You can't use that excuse because we have a new father. We can't, we, can't, we can't fall back on how we were raised in the natural world, can we? Now that may have an impact on us and it may influence us for good or bad. But what we need to do now is recognize our spiritual heritage, our spiritual father. And we can't say, well, what is it raised that way? Well, I, I don't have patience and I'm never going to have patience. So therefore, you just need to overlook my impatience. No, we can't do that because we have a command for us to be a Christian by being patient. We must be patient. We must be patient. We must be loved. We must be beloved. All those things that God is. God is love. God is patient. God is long suffering. God is our goal. And certainly the object of all that we should want to be. And that's what James is doing here. James is only commanding us to be what we are in possession of. Now let me say this, brothers and sisters, we may have patience as a grace, but that doesn't mean it's strong. Graces must be exercised, just like our muscles must be exercised. Listen to me. If uh, All of you look healthy to me, but if you were to make a decision right now to just sit, for the rest of your life. And never get up. I mean everybody brought your food to you. I mean you just went to uh, the bathroom right there. You were bathed right there. And you just never moved. Guess what would happen to your muscles? They would atrophy. They would dry up. Now you'd still have them. But they wouldn't be useful to you. Because they have grown so weak. The spiritual life is very much like that. We have, a, we have these graces given to us in the Holy Spirit. They, they are with us, and we must now exercise them by faith. By faith, trusting that whatever circumstance we face, this grace is going to come to a place of dominance because we are trusting in our Heavenly Father to who is working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight, Here's how we know this. If you're going through a hard time and an affliction, guess what you need to guess what you need to exercise? Patience. Cuz we don't naturally like hard times and afflictions, do we? We don't naturally like difficult situations and circumstances. We don't like uncomfortable things. We like easy. We like comfort. We like things to be the way we want them to be. We don't like all this other unknown stuff and hard stuff. We know that when we face these afflictions and difficulties and hard times that our God is now moving us to exercise this this weak muscle, if you will, of patience. Patience. Now how do we know this? Well, let's look at the text itself. Notice not only does it say in verse 8 to be patient, notice what else he commands. Strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now this imperative is something that we need to do. We need to strengthen our hearts. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, as one commentator said, it means to take decisive action. It means to take decisive action. It means to be determined. Um, another word that might also help you understand it, it's, it means commitment, committed. You know, it's like um, when you commit to something, you know, if you're going to... I don't know, how do you have an illustration here? You know, Deborah and I, are, we're, we're going to get ready to paint the outside of our house, and we're going to paint the brick. You know, and I had to, you know, we're looking at different color schemes so that we might pick the right one. Because guess what? Once you paint brick, you you committed. <laughs> you're committed. And you're, there's no turning back. You You paint it. You're committed to the color. You're committed to the process, right? So once you start, all right, you follow the, pre- the picture here. Once we begin that commitment, we're committed, decisive, determined. There's another word that helps us understand. It's resolute, to be resolute, determined. Um, another commentator put it this way, and I think many of you will like this. He said, it means to put some steel in your heart. Put some metal in your bones. Put some iron in your blood. Be, be, be resolute. Be strong. Let me, let me. Let's look at um, what this this help us um, look at uh, let's see look at Luke let's turn to the book of Luke look at Luke chapter 9 verse 51 I wanted to, I think this will be a good word picture for you to see and understand what I've already said to you Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Um, and again, this is regarding, uh, let's see, this is regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, one of the motifs about the gospel of Luke is it's a, it's a, it has the gospel of Luke has a journey motif to it. Christ is always going somewhere. And of course we know the end, the end designation Of Christ's journey is where? Jerusalem. The cross. So we see from the time of his ministry. That Christ is on this journey. All that he does. Is in relationship to him. Going on this journey. And we know where he's going to end up. We know he's going to end up on the cross. Well look at verse Uh, 49 and through 51 it says now john answered and says master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us but jesus said to him do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you and when the days were approaching for his ascension now we've talked about his ascension he was determined there's your word to go to jerusalem what does the text tell us there in the Gospel of Luke? It tells us that Christ set his face like steel to go to Jerusalem. That, that, that this is, you know, we're in the middle. This is not to the end of the cross, but he's setting his face. I'm going to Jerusalem. What he's saying is he made up his mind and he's going to do it. Nothing's going to stop him. That Christ exercised a will to go to Jerusalem. Now, go, let's turn to Isaiah. Let's see. Let me find the cross. Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 and look at verse 7. Again, this is prophetically speaking of Christ. Um... For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. That's the, that's the idea here. His face is set like flint. Flint is, is considered to be a hard stone. It's, it's something that cuts. It's flint. To, to have a face of flint is to be unturnable. You can't change his mind. Okay? That's what it means here to be strong. So now that you know when you read this, what is James asking or demanding in, of every Christian? He said, look Christian, be strong. Have a determination. Know, number one, you're going to face difficulties and afflictions. But do you, have you become resolute that when those times come, you're going to be faithful? You're going to exercise patience. You're going to see patience cultivated. You're going to have these graces. You're going to look to these graces as your sisters and brothers and comforts. You're going to see them grow up in your life. You're going to honor the Lord. Set your face like Flint to be faithful. That's what he's saying. That's what he means. To be determined. Let me ask you this, anything worth doing, right, is worth having a plan, right? Everything worth doing is worth having a plan to do it, to carry it out, have a scheme, have, have some type of, of way that you're going to execute it, face it, uh, deal with it, address the, whatever comes along in it. it you know, does anything happen in this life without some type of strong determination, what about marriage? How do you remain married? Resolute, right? Determined. What are, what are spouses generally determined to do? Make this thing work, right? How do we glorify God? I don't talk about Christian couples here. I'm not talking about the world. How do Christian couples do this? They say, well, we're going to make this work. We're going to learn how to humble ourselves. We're going to learn how to give up our pride. We're going to learn how to love each other. We're going to learn how to not be selfish. We're going to learn how to glorify God first, and then we're going to learn how to love each other. We, but we've got to be determined in doing this. I have to be, in, 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 we have to be determined, resolute, face like Flint in seeing the outcome of the marriage be something that glorifies God, not just something that exists. Okay? It just exists. No, we're talking about it being everything that Christ wants it to be. And it can be. That's what we're talking about. What about church membership? That's not easy either. I mean, these are just a couple of examples. Why is church membership not easy? Well, because you have people there. And people aren't easy to get along with. People can rub you the wrong way. People can say stupid and dumb things. People can hurt your feelings. People can do things you don't like. And the point is, will I be committed to my vows and my, my membership? Will I put my face and hands to this? And will I be resolute? Hard times, good times, no matter what. I'm resolute. There are many examples of this in Scripture. We're going to look at some of these. Take your Bibles and let's look at Luke twenty two thirty two. 32. This is, I think, the, the, very, the very heart of the message itself because then we're pointed to look at Job, the prophets, but especially to look at Job and what are we going to see in Job? We ought to see resolution. We ought to see a determination that Job possessed as he went through this affliction. Luke 22, verse 32. Notice what Jesus says to Simon Peter when he reveals that Satan is going to come to Peter and he's going to tempt Peter, notice what Jesus says. He says, I have prayed for you, verse 32. I have prayed for you. Now, what did Jesus pray? That your faith may not fail you. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What Jesus is saying is, Peter, I have have prayed that you won't be completely destroyed by this trial. And that's what it looks like up front. At first glance, it looks like Peter's destroyed. It looks like Peter runs off from the little slave girl that questions Peter's relationship with Jesus Christ. And Peter curses and runs off and, and weeping and wailing. And it looks like he's a coward and, as he is. And it looks like he's apostatizing. But that's not the end of the story. Praise God. We praise God because Christ goes after Peter. Peter. And Christ prayed for Peter to, that he wouldn't be completely destroyed, but that he would be restored. And when he would be restored, he would come back and strengthen his brethren. Notice what the text says. When once you have turned again, turned again, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're going to suffer. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a hard time and it's going to look bad, but you're going to turn. And I'm praying for that. And when you turn you're going to teach your brothers how to be resolute because you're going to be able to show them. You're going to be able to show them by your own experiences what it looks like not to be resolute and determined. Okay? I won't be able to give as much attention to all of these. Look at um, Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. 16.25 Now, notice this is the end of the book of Romans, and, and, and this is Paul's, if you will, doxology. It's his benediction. But I want you to see the, what he says here. Verse 24 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you, that's the word there, strengthen, strengthen, that resolution, He can give you resolution. He can establish you according to my gospel, that is, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. Let it be known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. I'm going to stop there make this comment. Listen to me carefully. This resolution that we are commanded to have by God's grace is a resolution brought forth and sustained and grown by the Word of God. If, not, if you are not and have no plan to read, study, meditate, memorize the Scriptures, beloved, how are you going to be resolute? How are you going to maintain your commitment How are you going to be fixated on what God is doing and going to do? How are you going to maintain that hope and joy if you do not ground everything upon the Word of God? How are you going to do that? It's going to be hard. It's going to be impossible to do. Uh, Let's go to Thessalonians chapter 1, a book that we went through a year or so ago. Thessalonians chapter 1 verse three or chapter three first thessalonians chapter three getting all everything backwards here um look at verse one with me says therefore when we could endure it no longer we thought it best to be left behind at athens alone and we sent timothy our brother and god's fellow worker in the gospel of christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Now, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop here. Notice, what does Paul do to this, this persecuted church body? He sends to them a preacher. He sends to them a teacher. Now, this backs up what I've already said, right? That what did Timothy do? How do, we, how do we gain confidence and strength as we go through affliction? We sit ourselves under the teaching of the Word of God and we soak it all in and we put it in our heart and we eat it and we devour it like it's steak and potatoes and it gives us the spiritual energy to be steadfast and committed. you got to have the Word of God you got to have it preached. And Paul says, listen, we were determined that you were going to fall away. So what I did, I sent to you a preacher so that he might teach you the Word of God, so that you may know that God's in control, so that you may eat the Word of God up, give you strength in your body, so that you can be strong and steadfast in this trial and affliction. I hope you see the picture there. I hope you see the picture. Let's go to one more in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Now, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace... Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Notice that's the goal. What is Christ doing? What's Christ doing? What's the Holy Spirit doing? Working in us. That which is well pleasing in God's sight. Working in us in what? God's word in us. So that we might be resolute, strong, so that when we put our hands to every work, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to the glory of God, it's a blessing to us. Now, brothers and sisters, look at verse 3 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So we see here that this command, again, to be resolute and committed and to be strong, established, and steadfast, comes by the God working in us. Working what in us? The Word of God. The Word of God. That gives us our spiritual nourishment and strength. You know, that's why Jesus rebuked Satan. When Satan tried to intimidate and tempt Jesus to eat this, turn these stones to bread, Jesus said, Don't you understand? I live by every word that comes out of my father's mouth. That's my sustenance, my strength. The strength in my weakness right now is not to eat real bread. And deal with you, Satan. The strength I have right now comes from my Father who is helping me fight you off. And beat you away. That's the strength. Now we need to understand as we go back to James. Let's look at James again. Let's look at our text. And notice, now we're, we're commanded to be patient. We're certainly commanded to be strong and resolute in our hearts. Notice, in our hearts... And look at a couple of things here. He says there in verse nine, um, was, uh, verse eight. I mean, for you to be patient, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. There is a termination to this. The Lord is going to bring an end to this this disobedience. He's going to bring an end to this this uh, idolatry or or this this. Um, sinfulness that was plaguing Israel, and in the Roman Empire, and Paul, James says, look, be patient. The Lord's hand is not passive here. It is active. Now, I'm going to skip over verse 9, and I want us to go down to verse 10, and then we'll come back to verse 9. Notice, Verse 10, he says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Now now James directs our attention. He's told us what to do. And now he says, Now I want to give you an example of, of men who did this. He says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now he wants us to look to the prophets of the Old Testament. Now we're not going to look at all the prophets because I think... That's something we should want to do on our own and, and certainly see the hardships, the difficulties. I mean look, it's so easy to think we have it hard. Well go back and read the lives of some of these men. They were they were martyred, they were killed. They were thrown into prison. They lost everything they had. They had to run for their lives. I mean, you would think, why? I mean, you know, it was costly to believe in God. And it was even more costly to go be a spokesman for God and to be God's preacher. Now, look at what else he goes on to say. He said, notice they went out to speak in the name of the Lord. That is, as they went to serve the Lord, man, they suffered suffered a lot. They suffered in the name of the Lord. They suffered for the Lord's cause. Now look at verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. Who endured. He goes on, he says, not only should we look at these Old Testament prophets who were serving the Lord and suffering greatly, but notice they passed the test. The word blessed is is given to those who pass the test who re, who remain resolute determined decisive and fixed on the outcome i'm not going to abandon the lord's word i'm not going to give up the lord's name i'm not going to i'm not going to blaspheme god's name i'm going to remain true no matter what james says they were blessed You want that designation, brothers and sisters. We should all want to be called blessed. We should all want that passing grade. All who have maintained by God's grace, all magnify God's grace by maintaining being resolute according to the grace of God, according to the word of God. Bring glory to God and they pass the test. And they are, the Scriptures says, blessed who endured. Not the ones who didn't endure. The ones who do not endure suffer depression. They suffer anxiety attacks. They suffer from this this lack of commitment. They suffer from making promises they don't keep. And their conscience stings them and pricks them and burdens them. And they carry around this burden all the time. And they have a hard time getting along with anybody because they have no peace with themselves and God. We're going to look at a couple of characters in the Bible that that's true of in a moment. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the title of my sermon this morning is the patience of Job. Out of the prophets, let's look to Job. Let's consider Job. That's what James is asking us to do. He's asking us to consider Job. So let's do that quickly. I'm going to mention five things about Job. Well, six things about Job. Six. And I'm just going to make a comment about them. Though every one of these comments could stand on their own as a sermon. I'm only going to mention them and move along. The first one, and now brothers and sisters, I'm not moving to the book of Job. we'll, We'll look at a couple of passages in a second. But here's what I want you to gain. I hope you've read the book of Job. If not, take today and do so. Number one, what we learn when we look at Job's life, we see Job's God. We see Job's God. We go reading the book of Job and one of the first things we see about Job is that he is a believer in an all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He's not... The God that was made up by the nations around him. He's the God that sits above all things and all people. And he sits in heaven and he rules and reigns over everything, performing and working out his sovereign will. That's what we see about Job. Job is that his God is all sovereign. Now what's important about that is during that day, they would have God of the, the, the areas. You know, be like, you know, the God of the mountains. If you lived in the mountains, you'd worship the God of the mountains. If you lived in the plains, you worship the God of the plains. If you lived next to the ocean, you worship the God of water. That kind of thing. You know, Job's God is over everything. Your God, brothers and sisters, is Sovereign. See, Job doesn't ask when the trials and and tribulations come. He doesn't say, God, what you doing? He knows God's sovereign. He knows God is in control. He knows that God is orchestrating and working out all His perfect holy will. So let's consider that. Number two, let's consider Job's enemy, Satan. See, Job's God must be our God, I hope. And then uh, Job's enemy is also our enemy. Yeah. See, Satan wanted to destroy Job. Satan's accusation was that Job was a hypocrite. God, he only serves you because you protect him. God, he only serves you because you favor him. God, he only serves you because of what you give him. He wanted to prove, Satan wanted to prove, that Job was nothing more than a hypocrite. And he said, okay, I can demonstrate it to you. I can prove it to you. But see, God had a more grand plan than Satan did. God wanted to demonstrate not Job's strength by allowing Job to be buffeted and afflicted by Satan. God wanted to highlight his grace. Two things God wanted to do. Number one, God wanted to highlight His grace. Number two, God was going to prove that Satan was a liar. And Satan was a liar. Satan, lied. Satan was wrong about Job. Satan lied about Job. And when you read the book of Job, that's what, one of the things you see is how what a scoundrel, what an adversary, what a liar Satan, a hateful, hateful, hateful being Satan is. So we see his enemy. The third thing we see, and I think something that we should dwell on, is we see his character. The Bible says, I mean, when Jesus or when God sees there Satan, he says, Well, have you considered my servant Job, who is righteous? Now, he wasn't saying that he was perfect and pure and sinless. What he was saying is, here's a man that lives by faith. Here's a man that offers sacrifices when he sins. Here's a man who repents of his sins. Here's a man that struggles and works hard to be what? Resolute in his beliefs and commitments to God. That's what it means to be righteous, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that you walk six inches above the ground. It means that you walk on earth with both feet, but you are in submission, active submission to the word and will of God. And you work at it by God's grace, by God's grace. Fourth thing we see about Job is we see his life. And what I mean by that is we see all of his possessions and we see his family. Job's like we are, isn't he? We see his possession he owned a lot of things. He owned a lot of cattle, he owned a lot of camels, he owned a lot of a lot of livestock and he had great wealth and possessions and he had many children. And notice that Job's adversary the devil first of all when when he couldn't get Job to curse God and to apostatize from God by taking his his possessions and and, and doing away with his children, then the old crafty serpent uses his wife. You know, now, now he says, okay, if I can't get you to curse God and turn away from God in this because of these things, I'll get your friends, your wife and your friends to hurt you deeply, and you'll curse God then. Because what happens when we get hurt by our close friends and, and spouses? Sometimes we give up. Right. Sometimes we want to give up. We want to throw our hands up and say, what use is it? What use is it? Job, Job remains this resolute figure in Scripture for us to emulate, for us to look to and consider. Now, there's a lot more I can say about each of these things, but I want you to understand. Notice the trial of Job. What's the purpose of the trial that Job suffers? Well, to prove God's power. Now, look, I just spent the whole last two sermons talking to us about the the fruit of the Spirit, the possession of the Spirit in us, the Spirit possessing us, we possessing the Spirit, we acting out these graces. What's the purpose of the trial? Bring that out. Bring that out. So that who's glorified? God. And we're blessed because we're obedient. So we see God's power in this trial. We see His grace being manifested in Job. And we see the devil is just a liar. And then the last thing we see is Job's restitution. Or his restoration. Because God gives back to him everything he lost and more. Now does that mean that every time we go through something and we lose something that God's going to give it back to us? Well, brothers and sisters, yes and no. No, in the sense that you might, you might not get it back in money or possessions, but you will always get it back in spiritual collateral. You will always get it back with joy, confidence, hope, a clear conscience. And again, that strength and resolution that's needed in order to live this life. So, brothers, we see there that we ought to look to Job, follow his example, but we also must be mindful of one danger. That danger is mentioned in the text here in James. Look at it with me. Look at verse 9. Do not complain. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Brothers and sisters, complaining is a terrible sin. Why is complaining such a horrible, terrible sin? Well, it's one of those sins that Actively promotes and gives birth to so many other sins. When we be, you know, what is complaining? Complaining, if you will, is the out, outburst. It's the the fruit or the bloom of discontentment. It's the bloom of discontentment. When we begin complaining, it's already a manifestation that in our hearts we possess discontentment. Maybe about how God is treating us. Or maybe about what we don't have. Maybe we just think and believe we deserve so much more than what God is allowing us to have and enjoy and possess. You see, brothers and sisters, it's going to be so hard to exercise contentment, which leads to submission if we begin complaining about one another are our circumstances. I'm going to mention just a couple of things and hopefully this will be helpful to you. Now, remember, complaining is a root sin. It it, it gives birth to many other sins. I mean, uh, complaining, murmuring gives birth to laziness. It gives birth to um, depression. You start looking around you and you just see everything that it doesn't please you and you start complaining about it and you become depressed and you become inactive. It's hard to keep your vows. It's hard to keep your promises. It's hard to be a good friend, wife, husband. Hard to be a son, daughter, brother, sister. It's hard to be a good employee, employer. It's, it's hard to get any of those things when you begin complaining to, about others in your, in your context of life. Judas was one of those complainers. And what did Judas end up doing? Betraying the Lord. You know what Judas complained about? Money. Remember when Mary Magdalene was washing Jesus' feet with her hair and tears? And then she went over there and poured this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? The Bible clearly says that Judas was mad. Don't waste that money. We could sell that perfume and feed the poor. See, he didn't like that. He didn't like Jesus letting her do that. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She's chosen the good things of this world. It's my behalf. Um, turn to Psalm 73. This is going to be an application of our conclusion. Psalm 73. We're going to see this power of complaining right here and the danger of it. Psalm 73 is a, a um, uh, it's it's a, a psalm certainly highlighting the righteous reign of the Lord Almighty, but um, look there at verse 2, it says, May he judge your people with righteousness, uh, I'm sorry, that's not 73, right here, um, Verse 2 and 3, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's the psalmist confessing? He's confessing his complaint before God. What is his complaint? Why do the wicked prosper and I don't? And God's people don't. And he acknowledges, what does he say? He said, boy, that was a slippery slope for myself. Once I began complaining, once I began you know, not looking at things through the lens of Scripture and God's sovereignty and, and God's will and what He's doing to me and wants to cultivate in me and the church and whatnot in history, I began to slip, he says. Look at verse 13 through 15. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. No, What? What? Have you ever said that? It's in vain for me to be holy. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Oh. Generation of your children. What does he... I mean, notice his confession here. I mean, all he can see and acknowledge, right, is how the wicked prosper... How the wicked doesn't seem to be in, in hardship. How the wicked just seems to go about their business and everything they touch turns to gold and profit. He says, I am mad about it. I'm envious about it. Why is not that happening? Why does it happening to me? Look at verse 21 and following. He says, when my heart was embittered, that's what complaining, complaining is the sign of a bitter heart. When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within, and I was senseless and ignorant. We don't—you're not rational. I was like a beast before God. It says before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. Uh, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me. I want to stop this, or receive me to glory. Let me—let me just stop there. I want to make these comments and. This sign of an embittered, angry, distraught heart usually bursts forth with complaints and murmuring. We judge God. We judge God because we don't believe He's wise enough, more powerful enough, or kind enough, right? We judge God. Why are you doing this to me, God? And then we judge each other. We judge the ones who seem to be doing better than we are. And James says, don't do it. Don't do it. Two things, brothers and sisters, to focus on. Two things. And that's what we're going to be left with here to think about. Notice the end of verse 11. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Never lose sight of that. We can never lose sight of the Lord's compassion for us. Because when Satan convinces you God is harsh, you'll start complaining. Your heart's going to get hard. You're going to get bitter. And you're going to start being a grumbler and a murmurer. Now I could take you to 50, a dozen places, a hundred places of Scripture. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He understands what we go through. He doesn't relish your hurt, but he also understands That this is necessary for us to long for glory, to long for righteousness if we really want righteousness. God takes no delight in our pain and suffering. He's compassionate. And will will not try us more than we're able to bear in His grace. But He's merciful. You know why He's merciful? Because none of us will ever get what we deserve none of us will ever get what we deserve brothers and sisters look to Job go home and read Job emulate Job Job sinned Job didn't do everything right I wish we had time to look at some of these verses where Job blessed the name of God because they're such they're inspiring let's be like Job let's pray